0: Welcome to the REL Talk Show, where we get up close with some of the greatest business minds in APAC, as they answer 10 questions about marketing, business, leadership, and management. Discover how current trends combine with timeless marketing principles for undisputed business success and become a marketing leader to go beyond your farthest ambitions. So get ready for some real talk with leaders in 10 questions with your host, Vineet Rajan. David
1: Falarme currently leads marketing for HubSpot in Asia and is based out of Singapore. He's built and led marketing teams at companies of varying sizes, from public companies to nascent venture-backed startups. He's driven growth and acquisition for products with millions of users and leading marketing functions at several SaaS businesses. He also runs a marketing community called apacmarketeers.com and blogs at themarketingstudent.com. Welcome to the show, David. Very excited to have you. Personally, I've been part of your marketing roundtables, also a member of your community, APAC Marketeers. It is so good to be chatting up with you one-on-one about marketing, content marketing, inbound and HubSpot, and of course, you
2: as a marketer. Welcome to the show, David. Vinny, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to digging into marketing, marketing careers and all the good stuff. Awesome.
1: Let's dive in, David. Tell us about you as a marketer.
2: Oh, sure. Okay. So I'm one of those people that just really likes marketing. I think about it in my spare time. I think about it even if I would write about marketing and I would blog about it. I post about it on LinkedIn, even if I didn't have any followers, just because I think it's so interesting. And so the path of my career has really been somebody who's been not moving up the career ladder. I don't think of my career that way. It's more like I'm filling in the bingo card of experiences so i started my career in fmcg i worked for hershey's chocolate and toyota at the beginning of my career then there was a stand at electronic arts where i was doing video games then i took a path into b2b enterprise then after that i moved to singapore where i joined a couple of startups and then eventually that took me to hubspot where i am today so i just really like marketing i've always wanted to see it from as many dimensions as i could and one of the things I've found is that there's not actually that many fundamental differences between B2C or B2B, big company, small company. I think the the fortunate path that I've taken is it's allowed me to see the fundamental truths as it were of marketing. And I think that's a really rewarding part of the path that I've chosen. So I'm excited to share what I've learned with your listeners.
1: Awesome. And thanks for also talking about how you've progressed in your career, David. I noticed that you worked in different kinds of companies, startups, very nascent setups, and established organizations. For you as a marketer, how has it been different in each of these organizations when I just look at the size and the team setups?
2: Yeah, I think it really depends on the specific company. So what you would expect to hear is that if you're in a big company, maybe you get more resources, but then you have less say because there's more stakeholders and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're in a startup, Therefore you have more authority. I think that is what you would expect. But what i found is it's very, very dependent on the company you work for. So for example, I work at a HubSpot now, which is around 4,000 employees. I think our market cap is 15 billion, some or 20 billion, depending on when you're listening to this, so essentially it's a pretty big company. And in a big company, you might expect oh, like marketing, we are not the most influential organization, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found, at least in this big company, is that marketing is, I would say, a tier one team just because we are responsible for driving uh, signups we're responsible for brand awareness. It's such a integral part of our business model that marketing has to be prioritized. Whereas you contrast that with another company, let's say Electronic Arts, where marketing was important, but it wasn't as important as the game development team. So we were not necessarily the tier one team or maybe a tier two team. So I think it, it really depends. And I think that's probably the answer you're going to hear from me. Anytime you listen to me on a podcast, it really depends i wish there was an easy answer but there wasn't and same thing with the startups you might expect that oh startup you have a lot of influence but i've i've definitely worked for startups where the founders had such a strong influence or had such a strong opinion that they would say okay this is my way and we're going to do it this way whereas another startup is very collaborative so i think it really depends on the place you're at
1: definitely and it's good to be in the driver's seat like you are in right now it's a very marketing driven organization
2: oh for sure for sure and that's what you want to be whenever you're evaluating a company to join, one of the questions you should ask is how important is marketing in this company? Is it a tier one, is it a tier two, is it a tier three team? I think a lot of people, especially coming out of B school or early or mid in their career, they prioritize the company brand like way too much. Yes, it's important. You wanna work for a company that maybe people recognize, but if it's an environment where marketing isn't valued, then you're gonna have limited impact. You're going to get the value of the halo effect, but in terms of your skill development, in terms of your uh, ability to develop further in your career deeper into the mid to late stage of your career you've just hampered your development because you've overvalued a brand name as opposed to having the exposure and having marketing be an important part of that company
1: yeah i think you might have even answered the next question i was going to ask you was how does one check if their career is going in the right direction one thing i did pick up is not to go after the brand name alone
2: yeah the brand name there's this value to that, but it's not everything. And I think it's very easy to get anxious around working for a company that people have heard of. And so I'm not going to discount the value of that. But what I'm going to say is don't overvalue that. So a lot of people I know, let's say work at Google, they actually don't like their jobs, but they feel shackled. We call it golden handcuffs because you're getting paid so much. And they like telling people they work at Google. Like their parents say, oh, my my son, my daughter works at Google. And so you get stuck. And so on paper, their career is going quote unquote in the right direction, but they're unhappy. So I think that there's a variety of frameworks that I like to use to think whether your career is going in the right direction. And of course, this is very subjective. It depends. But here's two quick ones that I think are very useful regardless of where you're at. It's a formula, actually. The reasoning behind the formula is what drives your career? Is it brand name? is it money is it network so the person who came up with this i wish i could remember the name so i'm sorry to the person who came up with this but what drives your career is impact because impact is the engine around getting a bigger network around gaining more money so impact is what you should be solving for so what goes into impact the formula goes impact equals environment times skills so impact equals environment times skills And so that allows you to judge whether the place you're evaluating to join or whether the place you're currently at is a good place for you to be. And you should always have in mind impact. How much impact am I getting? Am I getting more over time? Am I getting less over time? So environment in that equation just means, do you have a supportive manager? Do you have the resources that you need to accomplish the goals that you've committed to? Is it a good workplace where you feel valued and you feel like you like your coworkers? Is your team or is marketing a priority in the company strategy? So maybe you like your team, but it's not a priority. Like the company wants to do something different and you're just not going to get the resources you need. So environment certainly is very important. And then the skills part. So that's the part that's under your control. Are you gaining skills? Are you getting as much value as you can out of the mentors in that company? And so that's one framework. Impact equals environment time skills. And when you evaluate that versus your other options, you wanna make sure that you're in the place where you were having maximum impact. Uh, the other framework is something that Jeff Bezos has made famous and he calls it the the regret minimization framework. So essentially he was a well-paid paid employee at a top tier hedge fund in the States. And he was very wealthy. He was doing, I don't know, six figures a year. And he was in his, I think, you know mid to late twenties, early thirties. So he was like, okay, this is ticking the box of what, having a good career looks like. It looks like he financially successful, top in the industry and all that kind of good stuff. But then he had this itch to start Amazon. And then he had this question, he had to ask himself, should I leave my job, which has so much status, so much career value, so much wealth for an unknown thing. And it's a very difficult decision to make, but he did this thing where I'm gonna fast forward so I'm 80 years old and which decision do I regret more? Is it staying at the hedge fund or is it starting Amazon? And the insight there is when you fast forward all the way to the end of your life, you should do the thing that minimizes regret, because that allows you to zoom out of your present day situation and have a bigger view of your career over a longer period of time, which tends to lead to better decisions.
1: Wow. I think I'll have to really put this out on the show notes for everyone. Thanks for that, David. Very useful for me also when I look at this from my perspective. So...
2: There's definitely a lot to think about. For sure. It just I, I didn't come up with those. I'd love to take credit for them, but I'm happy to share them because <laughs> I think they've been very valuable.
1: Yeah. You head marketing for HubSpot in Asia. In your experience, David, how can a head of marketing or a CMO build a high-performance marketing team? What are the key ingredients which go into that?
2: Yeah, I think everybody has got their own answer to this. But one thing that I've seen in all the companies and industries I work for is... As the head of an organization, whether you're the CEO or you're in the C-suite or you're just the head of a big team, like a director or a VP, your main responsibility as a leader of that team is to set the standard. What I mean by that is you are the one that says, this is the talent bar of people we're going to let in the company and let in the team. And it's your responsibility to make sure that bar never drops. So what's common in the companies that I've seen where it becomes a boring place to work over time, they lose ground against their competitors, or it's just not an interesting place to be and they lose the brand value they have. It usually comes back to some form of they let people into the company that should not have been there in the first place. So as a CMO, your main responsibility is to keep the talent bar as high as you can for as long as you can. And I think if you boil it down to that one simple but not easy factor of leadership, then a lot of things will fall into place.
1: I totally hear you on that. In fact, One of the things I practice with the teams that I've grown is always hire people who are inherently better than you.
2: Yeah. The thing is, it's easy to say, but very hard to do, right? Because when you're growing a team, it's always, oh, we have this deadline. We really need to get somebody in this seat. We have to fill this headcount. This headcount's been open for eight months. Now you start to look bad because you can't build a team. So there's all this kind of pressure that makes this very logical and reasonable advice very hard to do in real life. But that's, again, your job as a leader is to keep that bar as high as you can for as long as you can. And that, like you said, Vinny, you hire people who are better than you, who can teach you stuff. Because once you do that, other smart people want to clamor to join your team. And it starts this very nice and virtuous cycle. But the the moment you relent and say, OK, fine, let's just get let this person in. They're not amazing. I don't love them. But we really need to fill this headcount. That's going to start a downward spiral that's very hard to stop.
1: Let's shift gears a little, David, and we're going to... Go slightly old school, a lot of our listeners study in B-Schools, one of the things they keep hearing about and it's also mandatory reading in many B-Schools is the Blue Ocean Strategy, Um, it's the simultaneous pursuit of how you can differentiate yourself along with very low cost to open up new marketplaces create new demand, and essentially going into very uncontested market space. While marketing does play a role in this to an extent, if I bring in inbound marketing, which HubSpot has pioneered over the years, how can you use inbound marketing to get into
2: the blue ocean? Or can you even do it in the first place? I'll try to answer this question in two different ways. One is that there's many ways to think about marketing, right? A lot of companies think about marketing only as the the team that writes blog posts or the team that makes videos and makes podcasts. So if that's your view of marketing, then I think it's actually gonna be quite hard to move the company into Blue Ocean the way the Blue Ocean was defined in that book. Where, because Blue Ocean essentially means there's a job to be done out there by customers and your new approach is so radically different from what's existing in the market that you've opened up a Blue Ocean where nobody else is competing because of your radical new approach. And that's only possible if you take the view that marketing is its is in its classic quote-unquote um, traditional definition where it owns the four P's, uh, price, place, promotion, product. So if you're defining marketing as a team that owns those four P's, then I think you actually have the ability to move a company to the blue ocean because you control price, you control product. And so in that case, inbound marketing in that way would have to be where the product allows you to pull new people into the experience. So there's probably some kind of viral element into your product. So in that sense, uh, that's how inbound marketing would work. If marketing has the strategic ability to influence product, influence price, such that it can get people to be aware of the product without necessarily doing aggressive advertising, as an example. So that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is let's say, okay, maybe you're listening to this and you are a marketer where the definition of marketing in the company is really just about the promotion piece, right? So out of the four Ps, you only own one and that's fine. Not every company is going to give marketing ownership over those four Ps. So let's say you're just in promotion. The way you have to think about blue ocean now is not necessarily about this new industry that you're opening up that nobody else is competing in. It's essentially about what can you do that other companies aren't doing and therefore create an advantage for yourself that way. And so inbound marketing in that sense becomes, how can you create a brand around your company that pulls people And the way we advise to do that at HubSpot is play a longer term game than your competitors, educate the market as much as you can, add as much value as you can, and things will fall into place. So our strategy went, cause we walked the, we walked the talk on this, is we have something called the HubSpot Academy where we teach people how to do marketing, how to do sales, and it's not salesy at all. Like the end of every lesson is not go buy HubSpot. It's just, okay, we hope you learned this. Here's a certification if you're interested. And then our blog, if your readers just check out our blog, it's full of here's how to do this, best practices, how to do this, top 10 ways, new ideas on how to do sales, examples, and all that kind of stuff. So our way of using inbound marketing to get into a blue ocean is just add value, educate the market as much as you can and even in the very competitive space of marketing technology we're able to do that so if you're in a company that is not as competitive as tech so let's say you're working on fitness but you're the company that is going way above and beyond to educate your customer base using inbound marketing using education as an advantage then you're going to have a leg up on the competition
1: and essentially that's how you kickstart the flywheel.
2: yeah because then what happens is you build trust so people think of you as somebody who's trustworthy, something they want to keep coming back to. So when it does come time for you to solve a problem that they have, you're top of mind, they've thought of you, they trust you, and they're going to value your advice. and They're going to value your product a little bit more than the competitors who are maybe only getting in front of them by buying ads.
1: And all these things add up to even the price component, because if you're able to reduce the cost of acquiring new customers, you can definitely pass on that cost to your new customers or existing customers. So it affects the price as well. It will affect the promotion as well, because now your customers are promoting your product themselves. So essentially all four Ps can be touched by
2: inbound marketing. Yeah, and you can even extend it to that if you have a really good inbound marketing machine where people are going to you without clicking on ads, then That saves marketing budget so that you don't have to pay as much. So your cost per acquisition goes down. So it's just a really good way to make sure that you have a defensive moat around your brand and how people perceive you. Dear listeners, we'd like to
0: take a minute to put in a word from our partner and podcast host, Hubhopper. Hubhopper Studio is India's leading podcast creation platform. You can start podcasting with Hubhopper Studio and get your voice heard across platforms like Spotify, Ghana. Google Podcasts, Wink Music, and more. So click on the link in the episode description or visit www.hubhopperstudio.com.
1: You briefly touched upon building a brand around educating customers. Is that the only way you look at brand building from the lens of inbound marketing or what are the other ways of looking at it?
2: Inbound marketing is just, how can you stand out by creating content that few people in your industry are doing. So whether that's education or whether that's just creating really remarkable, interesting campaigns, that's what really inbound marketing is. So the opposite of inbound is outbound, of course, which is like cold emails on LinkedIn or cold in-mails on LinkedIn, cold emails, cold calls. So the opposite of that is people seeking you out. So Seth Godin has a great concept of this. It's called Purple Cow. So essentially you stand out because you're doing the opposite of what people would expect. So brand building doesn't always have to be about educating people. It doesn't always have to be around teaching people. It's just how can you stand out creating content or creating things that are unique and memorable.
1: And you're able to create mindshare in the areas that you want to own. So when I look at HubSpot and all the content, including the academy and the blog, I see HubSpot as a thought leader in marketing, which is what I'm going to you for. So from that perspective, the brand building is completely owning mindshare with that cycle of education
2: yeah certainly education is the easiest way to start to build that trust and that thought leadership and so that's one of the reasons why we're so adamant about advocating hey if you want to build a brand where people think of you positively the easiest way to do that is just teach them something share what you're learning share what you know and then people will come back to you when they have a problem that your company can solve
1: we're going to touch upon one more thing and In a lot of organizations, we see sales and marketing somewhere there's a bit of friction. How does one align sales and marketing as a head of marketing? And what are some of the challenges one typically faces in doing this?
2: I love this question because it's one of those things that you cannot escape. It's just a natural cycle of things. It's like a cat and a dog. They will always fight just because that's their nature. So sales and marketing is the same way where... Sales, good salespeople, their brains are wired in a certain way. and good marketing people, their brains are wired in a certain way. And because of that brain wiring, they just inherently cannot see eye to eye, or it's rare that they will see eye to eye. Because a good salesperson, they will think like what's immediately in front of them and they will immediately prioritize what will make them money. That's the North star. What is gonna make me money? What's the easiest sales conversation I can have? Whereas marketing, we think of it medium to long-term. We think, okay, what's the brand story we want to tell? Who are the, the customers we want to attract? Six, 12, 18 months from now. So we, just by our function, we have to think a bit longer term. And there's a disconnect there, which causes all the challenges between sales and marketing. Because sales is gonna say, all oh, these leads are so bad. Marketing says you're not working the leads and all that kind of stuff. It all arises from that one central conflict. So how do you align those teams? I think, again, it's one of those things where it really depends on the company and who you have. But generally, there's a few principles you want to be doing. One is you want to align the two teams around a metric that sits in between sales and marketing. So, a nightmare scenario for a marketer would be if their target was closed revenue because they have such little control over that. But I know of some companies where that's the case, where marketing's targets are sales revenue, which is like totally unfair. And in some cases, I've seen some companies where the sales teams targets includes work rate which i think is okay but also not totally fair because you're forcing them necessarily to work leads that are not amazing because in one case marketing could run a campaign that gets kind of know 20,000 leads but all those 20,000 leads are so bad but now sales is committed to working them so you have to find one in the middle and in some companies it is what number of marketing leads are accepted by sales so Some companies call them SQL, sales qualified leads. Some companies call them SAL, sales accepted leads. So that's a a metric that sits in between. And I think that will go a long way in aligning those two teams together. At the end of the day, those two teams need to be looking at metrics that have uh, a link to growth of the business. Sales accepted leads is a good input metric, but I think an output metric that would be important is yearly growth by the entire business and being able to reverse engineer that into their own specific KPIs and input metrics for each team. But I think the most important is there's gotta be something in the middle that neither of those teams totally own, that they can align on that way they can work on it together and collaborate.
1: And when you say you work backwards, if I have a revenue goal of X as a marketer, I need to go back and say, if I have to get this much business, I need to give these many number of sales qualified leads for which I'll need to generate these many marketing qualified leads. And that's how the sales team also needs to work in terms of how they will convert or increase the conversion of the sales qualified leads. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right. So both teams, let's say at the beginning of the year, would look at this net new revenue growth number. Then jointly, they will say, okay, what would need to be true for us to get to this number? Okay, our close rate therefore needs to be this because it's like we get 100 leads And I don't know, 30% of them will close. So it needs to be this number, that number needs to hold or it actually needs to increase. So just from that first question, what is the step immediately before new revenue? You already have a conversation between sales and marketing that they're both trying to solve for this one number. You take that one step back. Okay, so let's say we have 100 leads. We need to get in order to get 30 closures. How many sales accepted leads therefore need to be happening for that metric to be the case? And then you keep working backwards until you get to, a number that's totally owned by marketing, like website visits or number of leads generated. So you start off by thinking about the sales point of view, making sure those numbers are understood by everybody, including the marketing team. Then you work all the way backwards to the marketing only metrics and make sure that the sales team understands what those metrics are. So they have a whole view of the funnel. It's one team and it's one entire conversion process that both teams own. That way uh, they know exactly what each other is working on, what good looks like, and therefore they can collaborate with their are gaps. We've
1: spoken a lot about inbound content, brand building. There's so many things that you have peppered this conversation so far, David. It's been a pleasure. Let's talk a bit about some of your favorite examples of content marketing. And I'm going to put a small rider. Let's not talk about HubSpot. Of course, yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no problem, no problem. I mean, to, to be good at marketing, I feel like you always have to be Trying to stay in touch with what other companies are doing, and again, it's one of the reasons why I've bounced around so many different industries and company types because I, I'm really of this belief that there's really no divide between big companies, small company marketing, B two B, B two C. Those are very common divisions that a lot of people have. Whereas I just think good marketing is good marketing. But since I spend so much of my time thinking about B two B SaaS, I have an example from B two B SaaS when everybody who is in the field of B2B, selling to companies, selling to enterprises, should be following Gong on LinkedIn. So Gong is a company that does a call recording software. They call it revenue intelligence, something like that, something fancy like that. They have good marketers there, as, as I'm alluding to. Uh, what they do really smartly is identified that they're selling to heads of sales, VP sales, uh, chief revenue officer. And where do those people hang out? All those people hang out on LinkedIn because they spend all their time selling on LinkedIn and, um, prospecting and all that kind of stuff. So their LinkedIn content is super, super good. And by super good, I don't just mean that it's like good information. It's actually really entertaining as well. And one thing you'll notice once you follow their their CMO, their salespeople on LinkedIn is everybody's branding is exactly the same. So it's clearly a strategy that they've put together. And so their content's really entertaining. It's one of those things where I look forward to seeing their content on LinkedIn, uh, where most content on LinkedIn is like promoting themselves shamelessly. It's like sign up for my webinar, sign up for this thing, download this thing, buy my whatever. Whereas they're genuinely adding value. I think the reason I enjoy it so much is because it's this principle of inbound marketing, but just applied outside of the traditional channels of blog or podcast or video, but into LinkedIn, which is social media. And normally you don't think of B2B companies doing well on social media, but I think they're doing some really good stuff. And if you want to talk about a company who is using inbound marketing as a blue ocean. Uh, of course, surely HubSpot is one of those, but I think Gong is doing a really good job of doing that.
1: Definitely check that out. Very intriguing to see what they're up to. I joined APAC Marketers, David, recently. That's an amazing community, a lot of interaction going on. I love the pods that they've created. How have you been able to grow this community? And let's just go back to all the things that you have learned over the years or some of the growth hacks. If you may want to spell it out. If yeah. are not
2: as secretive enough. That no, there's, there's no secrets actually. So <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty interesting. The reason that I've started this group. So it's apacmarketers.com for those of you who want to check it out. There's so much interesting things happening in APAC, in India, in our side of the world, in our time zone. But most of the stuff we read about is from the US or from Europe. So a lot of examples, especially for those of us in tech, are about Silicon Valley, the story of Facebook, story of Airbnb. But there's so many interesting stories happening in this side of the world, like the story of Zoho, I think, is super interesting, the story of Freshworks. And over here in Southeast Asia, like the story of Grab, the story of Gojek, all those companies, there's so many interesting things happening, so many interesting lessons. And so I just want to do my small part to make sure I'm helping amplify those stories. And so that's one of the reasons why I started it. If you continue that, you also start to find that there's all these people In India, in Southeast Asia, in Australia, in China, who are trying to find other marketers like themselves who are interested in this kind of stuff, but they're always needing to—I don't know—stay up at 2 a.m. to watch a webinar because it's run in California or run in New York, or stay wake up at 4 a.m. because it's happening in Europe or something like that. So I just got tired of doing that because I was one of those people, and so I I realized that there was demand for a community of people who were in the APAC, India, China time zone and wanted to get together and want to meet each other. So I don't know if there's any growth hacks. I think I was just very lucky that there was this group of people who really wanted to get together and talk about this kind of stuff. And so it, it organically happened over time. And if there was a growth hack that I learned, I think it's just, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So for those of you who follow me on LinkedIn, I post at least three times a week. And because my target audience is on LinkedIn, I'm able to get a lot of people organically that way. So if there's one learning I could get, uh, learning I could give, where's your target market hanging out and just relentlessly be top of mind for them in that social media network or in that platform that they're on.
1: There's something that I came across very recently that you spoke about, this plethora of blogs, content, podcasts out there, which talk about the greatest growth hacks or
2: the best practices.
1: Where do marketers draw the line and the sheer amount of information,
2: where does one begin your thoughts? So, Caveat, we do this at HubSpot where you'll find a blog post or you'll find a podcast or video where we say, here's the 10 best ways to do this. I think that the trap that a lot of people can fall into when they consume a lot of this is they think, ah, yes, okay, here's a case study on a company doing X. Therefore, I'm going to do that. So you, as an example, somebody might hear this podcast and say, oh, yes, Gong is doing really well on LinkedIn. Therefore, I'm going to copy everything that they're doing and I'm going to assume that's going to work for my company. So I think that's the trap. I think of it as the the tyranny of best practices where you read a really good blog post or you listen to a a podcast, you feel inspired, then you immediately try to copy it for your business. And nine times out of 10, if you just immediately copy and don't take a step back to think about it, it's not going to work out because there's a lot of reasons why that specific campaign or that specific approach worked for that company. And you also have to take a step back and think, is this Applicable to my situation? Is this relevant to my business model? So, for anybody out there who is bookmarking a lot of blog posts or following tweet threads or listening to podcasts, it's great to be inspired by a lot of the stuff that you hear. But before you implement it, you have to take a step back and think Is this relevant to my situation? Do I have the same resources? Do I have the same competitive dynamic in my industry? Do I have the same skill set as the people who have executed this? And before you copy and paste anything, you have to make sure that you can actually do it and it matches your situation. Otherwise you're gonna waste a lot of time and money. So I'll give you an example on this. A couple of jobs ago when I was working at a startup, there was a case study I came across that was like, how to use blogging, how, how I use blogging to, to increase the signup rate at my startup by 3000%. one of those, one weird trick to increase your sign ups by 10,000% or something crazy like that. So I read it and it made total sense. It was a great story. I understood how they did it. And so I read that and I thought, "Ah, okay. All I have to do is follow this blog post step by step because he's laid it out and do that and execute it. Next thing I know, my CEO is going to say, "Oh, great job, David. Here's a promotion. Here's more money." Or look at my Google Analytics chart and then just watch this meteoric rise that is going up and up. But of course, it didn't happen because I didn't take the step back to think, "Wait a minute, does this even apply to me if it's an inspiring story, sure?" But a lot of the things he's doing is for a different industry, is for a different set of resources, is for a space where the customer has a different type of behavior. So it's very easy to fall into this trap. You really have to take a step back and think, does this apply to me? Are there enough similarities in the author's situation to my situation that I can take a lot of these best practices and actually apply them? Thanks a lot,
1: David, for this. Very insightful. I think each of these questions that we discussed today and 10 in all, as promised to all our listeners, quite a journey. It's been very inspiring to see you from this side, how you've grown in your career. And I think some of the value you add to your network and to people around is the practicality of what you say. And that really, very clearly stands out. And one of the reasons I was very keen to host you on the show. So thanks a lot, David,
2: from me at RelTalk. For sure Vinny, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun and hopefully. I was able to share some value with the audience. Most definitely. Thanks, Vinay. Cheers.
0: If you liked this episode of the REL Talk Show, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you think this podcast would help someone else, do share. Your support will take us a long way in reaching more listeners. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to email alerts on www.reltalk.show.